Well, if you're a visitor with us uh, this morning, we're in an ongoing study here in the book of John. It, uh, in the sixth chapter, it's a fascinating portion uh, of Scripture, one that we need to uh, make sure that we carefully study to make sure that we get an understanding of the whole uh, before we start diving into the uh, individual parts. Uh, although the top of the chapter begins with the familiar story of uh, Jesus multiplying the loaves and fishes in order to feed uh, the multitude that was commonly known as the feeding of 5,000, but as I told you, more than likely, somewhere between 15 to perhaps 20,000 people or more, uh, he feeds them instantaneously. And then there's the familiar story of Jesus walking on the water. Those two miracles really are not the uh, emphasis here in chapter 6. As I told you, chapter 6 of John, really the emphasis is about the issue of true and false followers of Christ. True and false followers of Christ. And you see that in the response that the true disciples have towards Christ. And then you see that compared with the, uh, uh, the responses that the false followers of Christ, the false disciples of Christ have uh, towards him, the way they respond to him. And, and as I told you previously, the reality is not everybody who calls themselves a follower of Christ really is one. Some people may try to deceive us that they are followers of Christ, but I think there's a large group of people who have deceived themselves into thinking that they're followers of Christ. But the Lord himself says on the day of judgment, Matthew chapter 7, there will be many who claim that they have a personal relationship with him, many who claim that they have done many miraculous things in his name, but then Christ comes and says, depart from me, I never knew you. And that's a tough spot to find yourself in. That's why the message of the hour is so important that you would again evaluate yourself next to the page of Scripture to make sure that you are in a category of not those being deceived. Now, we spoke a little about this by way of introduction last time, but I want to return to the issue uh, before we get into the text proper that starts there in verse 22. Because the more I've studied the passage this week, the more I've looked at the text, uh, again, I'm absolutely convinced the primary intention of the Holy Spirit who encourages uh, John to take up the pen and write is, uh, again, this issue of the false and the true. And I want, to see, I want you to see the whole first before, again, uh, we dive into the, the individual parts. Remember I told you from chapter 5 to chapter 6, there's a break. Between 5 and 6, there's a period of time. If you look up at chapter uh, 6, verse 1, look at the introductory words, after these things, right? And go all the way down to the end of the chapter, go to chapter 7, verse 1. So the end of uh, chapter 6, chapter 7, verse 1, after these things. So after these things, after these things, right? There's a, gr- a bracket there. So I think what the Holy Spirit is telling us that chapter 6 is a whole. It's a unit. We need to see it that way. It's a long chapter, obviously, 71 verses. And again, the main theme of the chapter is the difference between false and true, between true and false disciples of Christ. Now, it's interesting. The true disciples are called disciples, and the false disciples are called disciples. Mathetes is the word, so it's referred to the same word meaning uh, a learner or student follower. But there's a very different distinction between the true and the false. Now, last time we were in verses 16 through 21, we saw again the situation where the disciples are caught in the storm. There's a supernatural sign, and Christ comes to them, to the men, in the middle of the sea, walking on the water, and then we saw their response to him. In the verses that we're going to start to look at today, you see the same kind of thing. They've all been um, a privy of a miraculous sign. They saw the supernatural sign back there in the uh, loaves, the feeding of the fish and loaves in 20 through 24. And then there's going to be the response to that supernatural sign in verses 25 to 29. And then a response. 
a response to what they saw and a response to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you want to remember the reaction, right? Remember the reaction of the, uh, of the true followers of Christ. Remember the reaction of the multitude. Remember, the crowd wants to come and make Christ king, right? Uh, I mean, if you're getting free breakfast, free healing, and medical care, free everything, right? You want to make that guy king, and that's what they want. The crowd wants Christ to be king, king but Christ won't have any part of it. He commands the 12 in the frenzy of the crowd. He commands his, his 12 people to get in the boat, to cross, start to cross the sea to Capernaum, and at the same time, he sends the crowd away, the multitude. Remember, I spoke about the fact that the authority of Christ is on display. He commands his own. He commands those who are not his own. Everyone's going to obey him. Now, the men, of course, are caught in the middle of the storm. They're on the lake, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they're fearful of their lives until the Lord comes and rescues them. And we saw that after they recognized who he was back in verse 21, uh, when they saw Jesus coming to them on the water, they were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat. Initially, they're not uh, willing to receive him in. They don't recognize who he is because no man walks on water. But Jesus Christ does because Jesus Christ is no mere man. The guy who created everything by the word of his power can certainly suspend the laws of nature that he himself created. So when they recognize him, they bring him into the boat. They receive him in the boat. Matthew, in his version, Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, says, Those who are in the boat worshipped him. They worshipped him and they said, Certainly you are the Son of Man. Or you certainly you are God's Son, right? So the appropriate response, the only appropriate response of a true follower of Christ is to fall before him and worship him and acknowledge him for who he is. Which is, again, completely and immensely different from the false followers that we see here in the rest of the chapter who are, in fact, going to reject him. If you take your Bible, and I'm going to have you kind of follow with me a little bit here, so keep, keep up with me if you can. If not, just listen. But look at verse 60. Look at verse 60. It says there it says many therefore of his disciples when they heard said this this is a difficult statement who can listen to it so of course my mind says well what did they hear what was a difficult statement that they had a hard time listening to and again it's the sermon uh, known as where he per, uh, proclaims himself to be the bread of life the sermon starts in verse 32 and goes all the way down through um, verse 60 so look up at verse 32 verse 32 jesus therefore said to them truly truly i say to you it is not moses who has given you the bread out of heaven but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven now jesus isn't going to uh, preach another sermon on the fact that he's equal with god is he well the answer is yes he is because he happens to be equal with god now the crowd who has gathered there that morning are thinking on a physical level uh, they've thought well you know jesus just fed us dinner last night now they want breakfast, but instead of getting a breakfast, they're going to get a sermon. They're not going to get physical food, but they're going to get spiritual food. And Jesus is talking about something that doesn't perish like manna did, but he's going to talk about the true bread that comes down out of heaven, the, pr- the true bread that gives spiritual life, that gives eternal life to those who take it in. Verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread jesus said to them i am the bread of life he who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst but i said to you that you have seen me yet you do not believe so jesus is offering to the multitude himself as the bread from heaven the bread that gives eternal life verse 37 all the father gives me shall come to me and the one who comes to me i will certainly not cast out 
Now, Jesus isn't going to stop here and preach on sovereign election, is he? Answer, yes, he is. Not only yes, he is he going to give that sermon, he does give that sermon. He emphasizes uh, the sovereign will of God and the selection of those who come to him for salvation. Verse 38. For I've come down out of heaven, or from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, Jesus claiming deity, just like he's done numerous times. 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that uh, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Again, Jesus is not only claiming sovereignty, not only claiming equality with God, again, he is claiming that he has the power to raise the dead. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. Again, emphasizing the sovereign election of God in salvation, but again, emphasizing human responsibility in salvation. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, right? God is sovereign, that's true, but God works through faith. So men have to believe, men must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the only way uh, for salvation, again, in order to be saved. But even that faith that they have to exercise is a gift of God. It says that very clearly in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. It says in Ephesians 8, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And when we've talked about this issue before, I said, I think the way that you have to see this is two parallel lines of truth. Two parallel lines of truth that never intersect. Sovereignty of God and salvation on one side, and then the responsibility of man to respond, to believe. It's impossible for us to figure it out, but I don't have to figure it out. It's what the Bible says. It's perfectly resolved in the infinite mind of God. So I just teach exactly what the Bible says. I believe both. I don't have a problem with that. It's what the Bible teaches. So I just preach both and People on this side of the camp don't like me, and people on this side of the camp don't like me. But I like everybody, so I just preach what the Bible says. All right? He goes on in verse 40 and says, And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Again, claiming Jesus claims he has the power to raise the dead. Verse 41, the Jews. Now, you remember when John uses the phrase the Jews, he's talking about the false religious leaders of the day, those who are hostile towards Christ. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. Again, he's making himself equal to God. Again, just like in the wilderness, stop and think about the manna, right? When God gave the Jews manna in the wilderness, they murmured, they grumbled. Before, before the manna was given and after the manna was given. And now they're murmuring or grumbling against God when the bread of life is given to them. Right? Might say something about the hardness of mankind's heart. The grumbling, the murmuring. Verse 42. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, paraphrase, who in the world does this guy think he is? Right? We know this guy. What is he doing making these kind of audacious claims? They're hostile towards him because of their unbelief. How does he now say, it goes on, it says, I've come down out of heaven. Well, I'll give you a secret. He can say that because he has. That's the reality of who he is. Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, another devastating blow uh, to uh, man's uh, so-called free will. Uh, Those who teach that men supposedly can either accept or reject the gospel according to their own desires, the Bible says repeatedly that's not true. We've been talking about this, especially in the evenings, and I pray that if you're not coming in the evenings, you come. 
If you're not coming in the evenings and you can't come, then you should be listening online. Romans 6 is one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible on the emancipation of the Christian because of the person of Jesus Christ, that we have been freed from sin. And you go, oh, I'm fighting my flesh. Well, I know you are. So is everybody else in the room. But come and listen to what God has done for you in Christ. Right? So, and we've talked about men don't have free will. The reality of the truth is, but by God's word, that every man born in this world is a slave. You're going to serve somebody. Right? No man has free will. Every man born in this world is enslaved to sin. Every man born in this world, the natural man, has a heart, a will, a mind that is an absolute, complete rejection and opposition to God. In fact, hostile towards God, without any ability whatsoever to obey God. Those of us who do believe, we do so because God has sovereignly, in his grace, determined that results from eternity past. Again, Ephesians 1 and 4, it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, right? That we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. That's a tremendously gracious, kind uh, uh, verse. It does no uh, disservice to man's free will, because man doesn't have free will. You've got to start thinking biblically, and not cultural Christianity-wise. What does the Bible say? You've got to define terms biblically, not popular Christian culture. Because popular Christian culture is not going to help you. The Bible will help you. The person, the biblical person of Jesus Christ, he'll help you. Again, in verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You want to know, I'm on this kick lately. Do you want to know what it means in the Greek? It means that no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent Christ draws him. Phenomenal what it says it says what it says it means what it says aw tozier in his classic uh, the pursuit of holiness points this out he says that before a man can seek god god must first have sought the man before a man can seek god god must first have sought the man it lines up exactly with what scripture says romans 3 and 11 there's none who seeks for god do you want to know what the word none means in the greek right no one tozier we pursue god because and only because he has first put an urge within us and that spurs us to the pursuit. So we can't take credit for the pursuit and at the same time the Bible says we can't even take uh, credit for the belief because that comes as a gift of God. But at the same time the Bible clearly exhorts everyone, everyone including the ungodly to seek the Lord. Isaiah 55 verse 6 Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man uh, his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's a tremendous uh, encouraging portion of scripture. You want eternal life. You want freedom from sin. You want not to face the condemnation of, of God because of your rebellion against him. Come. Salvation's full and free in Christ. Full and free. Whoever wants to seek the Lord may come. Someone has written this. He said, there, So there is the mystery here that no one can fully understand. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Yet we are commanded to come to Jesus and seek him diligently, to seek him for mercy of salvation and keep seeking him for the grace to live in a manner that is pleasing to him. Again, two lines parallel. They never intersect. I just teach both because that's what the Bible teaches. 
Whoever desires to have eternal life may come. Place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Be forgiven. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Right? It's a paraphrase. They shall be taught of God. It's a paraphrase out of Isaiah 54, verse 13, emphasizing the, the point that, again, if someone does come to faith and repentance, the only reason is because, listen to what it says, they have been taught, right? They shall be taught of God. They are taught of God, drawn by God, taught literally uh, here in our context by God himself, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Right? Isaiah 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 46, not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Again, another claim to deity. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Manna is helpful to a certain extent. It obviously sustained the people's physical needs in the wilderness, but it could not impart to them the life that they needed, true spiritual life. It couldn't meet their spiritual needs. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, verse 51, that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. So again, Jesus is promising eternal life to those who take him in completely. Right? That's what you do when you eat something. You take it in completely. It becomes a part of you. You assimilate it into your body. Right? He shall live forever, and the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, when he says the, 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 the uh, bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh... He's really prophetically referring to the fact of his impending death on Calvary's cross. That's what he's talking about. He's going to he's saying, in essence, look, the only appropriate sacrifice for sin is when I, Jesus Christ, lay down my life freely as a substitute in your place. I'll willingly stake, take the stroke for you because of my love for you and for the Father's love for you. Verse 52, again, the, the Jews, those are hostile towards the Christ, the religious leaders. Uh, the Jews, therefore, began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man eat his flesh, or how can this man give us his flesh? So the spiritual leaders of Israel don't get the picture, right? They are spiritually blind to the analogy, spiritually blind to the truth, spiritually blind to Jesus' illustration. They're thinking on a physical level because the spiritual truth was hidden from them because of the hardness of their heart. Verse 53, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat uh, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, uh, so he who eats me, shall, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Now again, Jesus is using an analogy to try to teach a spiritual truth. He's not... Not N-O-T, capital, right? He's not teaching, literally, eating his uh, um, flesh and drinking his blood, right? Again, I said it last time, I'll say it again. Uh, the, the picture is to sustain physical life, you take in food. To sustain spiritual life, because Jesus Christ is the only source of that spiritual life, you've got to take him in. Take him in completely. You've got to assimilate him. You've got to believe in his sacrificial death uh, on the cross. Uh, uh, you've got to believe in his resurrection uh, uh, for, uh, uh, for eternal life. Verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Right? Again, they don't get it. 
He's teaching in the synagogue and in their false religious system, they are counting on their own works righteousness to get them right standing before God. Right? They, they don't have a system other than their own works righteousness. And in their religious system, they certainly don't have a category for a crucified, bloodied, murdered Messiah. They're not thinking like that. When he proclaims the fact that he is going to die, they're going to have to believe in him. They're going to have to believe in him who he is and in his death if they're going to be saved. But it is an absolute stumbling block to his hearers. Again, a dead, bloodied Messiah. It does not fit their thinking. They don't get the analogy, drinking his blood. They don't understand it whatsoever. But that's exactly what Paul said of these people, did he not? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The whole world looks at the cross as absolute, utter nonsense. Except for those of us who God in his mercy has opened our eyes to see the truth and the blessed truth of the blessed person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see it as God's wisdom, God's mercy, God's kindness. Stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, Christ the wisdom of God. Now verse 60. Many of the disciples, therefore, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? So when they heard this, remember the whole discourse here is on what does this mean? This means his words, his teaching, the proclamation of the gospel. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. Right? They don't believe what? They don't believe his words. They do not believe what he has just taught, what he has just spoken. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65, he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and they were not walking with him anymore. Right? As a result of this, as a result of his words, as a result of his teaching, as a result of the truth that he was proclaiming, it caused many of these so-called disciples, these so-called followers, to flee from him and not follow him anymore. Verse 67. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, Do you not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter, verse 68, answered him and said, Listen, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What is the distinction between the disciples who do not, will not, refuse to believe, and the disciples who do believe? 
Again, it's what Jesus said, right? It's his words. That's the dividing line. His person and what he says. His words. The true believer says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They believe him. They believe his word. They believe his truth, the teaching. They understand who he is, right? They believe and know that he is their only hope of reconciliation with the Father. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then worship takes place, right? That's what they do. All true followers of Christ worship him. Once they recognize who he is, they they worship him. False believers, false followers, false disciples of Christ, on the other hand, Jesus says of them, verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe, right? Again, they don't believe his words, right? They don't believe what he has just spoken. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knows everything, right? Because he's omniscient. He knows everything, right? He, he knows the true from the false. He knows true believers from false believers, true disciples from false disciples, or true and false followers of him, true and false followers of Christ. Now, of course, and as other commentators, commentators have pointed out, this is really an introduction to the prototype of all prototypes, right? the prototype of all false believers, the prototype of all who will betray him. And that prototype, the first one out of the chute on a major level, obviously, in the New Testament, is none other than Judas. That's why verse 70 says what it does. And Jesus answered them, did I not myself not choose uh, you twelve, and yet another one, or yet one of you is a devil? Verse 71, now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I've told you this before, but Judas is the most pathetic individual who's ever lived. A blight on the pages of human history. A man who will forever be under divine punishment, living eternally with an accusing conscience, with the terrifying reality that he was the one who betrayed the Savior. So Judas is obviously the prototype defector. He knew the truth. He walked with Christ for three years. He had firsthand eyewitness knowledge of the fact that Jesus was no mere man. And over and over again, Judas saw with his own eyes Jesus do those things that only God himself could do. With his own eyes, Judas saw the divine power of Christ. Judas was there, I mean, literally, physically, right alongside of Christ when he healed the sick, when he cast out demons, when he... uh, caused the lame to walk when he gave sight to the blind when he raised Lazarus from the dead he saw it all personally Judas was an eyewitness uh, to the divine power and not only that of Christ but to Christ's immense mercy his grace his compassion he saw the love of Christ in action and yet he still rejected him he hated him he despised him there's never been a more evil man than Judas He was exposed to perfection. He was exposed to truth. He had an intimate personal relationship with the incarnate Son of God. And and no man ever had more evidence to Jesus' deity. No man ever had more firsthand knowledge of salvation. And in spite of all, Jesus willfully rejects Christ. He willingly betrays Christ. He willingly allows himself to be used as an instrument of Satan. And Satan will enter into him and take full possession of him. Now, Judas's rejection of Christ, again, defies all human logic, right? All human comprehension. But I've said to you before, unbelief is completely irrational. Unbelief is irrational. Unbelief is nothing more than rebellion in the face of the evidence. Unbelief is never because of a lack of evidence. Unbelief is always a suppression of the truth 
and unrighteousness. And again, Judas here is the prototype of all, all unbelievers, all false disciples, all false followers of Christ who follow Christ for a while and then they abandon him. One writer says this, So lest we think that hell has a special compartment only for Judas, we must remind ourselves that everyone having heard the truth and having known the truth and walking away from the truth is in the same category of Judas. That's a tremendous statement. Okay? There's not a separate compartment just for Judas, and we're not as bad as Judas. No, if you hear the truth, know the truth, have listened to the truth, and you walk away from the truth, you're in the same category as Judas. Because God has a desire that men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and he has taken great pains to send his son incarnate into this world to be the suffering savior, the substitute, and he has taken great pains for you who are in this room if you want to have a Bible that speaks to you in the English language. And if you're this morning a guest and you don't have a Bible, you take one from the pew right in front of you and you take it with you as our gift to you as you leave because now you have no excuse because God has made sure that you have a copy of his word so that you can understand what truth is. To hear the truth, to know the truth, to be exposed to truth, and to reject the truth is to your eternal peril, not just Judas's. Now, Jesus knew all this was going to happen. He already knew that one of the ones he picked was the devil. He already knew that Judas was going to betray him. And he knew there would be many false followers. Many false followers who would not believe his word. And you see that repeatedly in the New Testament. Why don't you just put a mark there in your Bible if you want. We'll come back. But if you wanted to look or you can just listen, your choice. Matthew chapter 13. The parable of the sower. And listen to what the text says. Matthew 13, verse 18. Hear the parable of the sower. Verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away that has been sown in his heart. This is the one whom the seed was sown beside the road. And the one whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately he receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself. It's only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. When the one to whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Obviously, I'm reading the application of the uh, of the parable, the, what Christ says, this is what it means. But again, the sower goes out and he sows seed. The seed is the word of God. And it goes on all these different soils. And, but it's only the last one, verse 23, to whom the seed was sowed on good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth fruit, right? Some 100 and some 60 and some 30. He's saying, look, many people throughout the world have the opportunity to hear the word. It's only those who receive it and only those who bear fruit by evidence of the fact the Holy Spirit has now dwelt within them or taken up residence within them because the fruit of the Spirit, right, changes people. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, uh, self-control, right? It's the fruit. The person of the Holy Spirit changes us from who we were to who we are. Again, Romans chapter 6 in the evening, we're going through that. So again, he's saying, look, not everybody who hears the word becomes a disciple, a follower of Christ. Not everybody who claims to be a follower of Christ really is one. And again, that's why the New Testament is always encouraging us to check ourselves. 
to examine ourselves, make sure that we're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, examine yourselves, or you do not recognize this about yourself, that Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test. He's saying, look, if you are a genuine believer, there's something different about you because of your union with Christ, because of Christ being in you. Now, it's important for us to make sure we're in the faith, but it's even more important to make sure that Christ is in us, right? Then unless we fail the test. That's, again, I've told you before, when we go to new members, new members classes here, we don't just ask, tell me your testimony. I'm somewhat interested in that, but I'm more interested, and I want to hear, I ask the question, what difference has Christ made in your life since you came to saving faith? I want to hear from your own lips evidence of salvation. I want to hear, I was, but now I am. I want to hear some statement on that, uh, on that reality, because that's truth. In fact, just the other day, I was talking to somebody about this very same topic, this very issue, and I asked them a couple of weeks ago the question, and I asked them again the question. They tell me they're a believer, so I want to know what difference has Christ made in your life since you said you came to saving faith? Here's the answer. Got it? That's a pretty devastating answer. Then I warned them. I pleaded with them. Think deeply on this issue. Think deeply on the question, a number of questions. What's the difference between a true disciple and a false disciple? What's the difference between a true believer in Christ and the kind of belief that the demons have, as it says in James chapter 2? Because in James chapter 2, obviously the demons most certainly don't have saving faith. But in James chapter 2, where it says the demons believe, it says they elicit a physical response because of their belief. They shudder, they shake physically in terror because of their knowledge of Christ. When most men and women who I have met who claim they believe in Christ have never once stood before the Holy, before the Holy God in terror because of their sin. Now, I've, I've used that before with you. I understand that. And, and it's not crazy. The, the crazy part is not understanding the holiness of God. What's the difference, I asked this person, between knowing and knowing? K-N-O-W-I-N-G. What's the difference between knowing and knowing? Or you're claiming to know Christ and him claiming to know you. Since you're in the book of Matthew, just flip back a couple chapters. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. The Lord says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Drop down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
How do these people end up here? I asked the person I was talking to. How do they end up here? Well, they thought they knew the Lord. They thought they were on their way to heaven. They thought they were doing many good things, good deeds in the name of the Lord. They thought they were praying to the Lord. They thought they were casting out demons, again, performing many, many miracles in the name of the Lord. But the Lord said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And the reality, the fact, instead of being on their way to heaven, they're going to be sent to eternal hell. How is it that these people claim they knew the Lord, but the Lord says, I never knew you? What's the difference between knowing and being known? Right? False followers, false disciples of Christ do not understand, they do not accept what the Bible says in regards to what it means to know Christ in a salvific way. That, that was a problem in Jesus' day, and that's most certainly a problem in our day. Nothing has changed, right? Nothing has changed. Because the reality of the fact is there are many people on the broad road that leads to destruction, and there are few people on the narrow way that leads to life. And again, this morning, I pray that you're not one of them. It's the narrow path you want. And John 6, again, lays out the characteristics of the true and the false, the true follower, the false follower of Christ. Now go back to John 6, and we'll start to pick the text up. Again, in the context of what we've been reading, the issue of John 6 is true and false. And the true and the false are distinguished by how they respond to Christ and by how they respond to what Christ says. And the ones who are driven away from him ultimately are driven away by his words, by what he says, by the truth. Because the gospel is offensive. It is a stumbling block. It is a foolish message. Now on the flip side, if you wanted to attract false disciples, false followers, you make sure you make a ministry that is, a fact, uh, that is uh, uh, focused on attracting people, focused on attracting numbers. You make sure if you want to attract false disciples, you spend a good deal of your time and money on marketing strategies, and you ask people, you survey people and ask them what they want in a church. And you make sure that everything you say is positive, and you make sure that they're going to get everything they'd ever want, and they're, they're nothing ever would be uh, something that would offend their feelings, because again, you're trying to attract them into your, build, into your building. You would promote tremendous things like a, a Christian diet program. Uh, you would have Zumba. You would promote Zumba on your website, and, 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 of course, somewhere on your website, you've got to make sure that everybody knows you've got a coffee bar and really good coffee, not bad coffee. We're not doing Folgers around here, right? Good coffee and, and free food. Make sure you promote that. And, of course, if you want to attract false disciples, you make sure you have the latest cutting-edge sound and light system, and if you're really cool, some of the smoke. Okay? And you make sure that your music pro program dominates the time that you're there, that it's theologically shallow, that it helps people work themselves into some kind of an emotional frenzy where they can set their mind aside. And when it comes down to the quote-unquote sermon, you make sure that you never talk about any kind of doctrine. You never make sure you talk about anything that clarifies truth. You make sure that you certainly don't talk very long, 10 to 15 minutes perhaps at the best, and most certainly no teaching on a crucified Christ for sin, his blood being shed, no talk about sin, death, or hell, and the judgment to come, because you want to give people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. 
No hard messages about counting the cost to follow Christ, nor the fact that many people throughout the history of the church, even today, have been hated, tortured, persecuted, stoned, imprisoned, and murdering, murdered for following Christ. Most certainly no uh, teaching on exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only way that a man or a woman can be reconciled to God. No negative talk about why we need Christ. Nothing that would make anybody feel quote-unquote uncomfortable because we want people to quote-unquote accept Jesus. Never speak negatively about sins that the culture is actively promoting uh, that the Bible would uh, condemn. Uh, you want to make sure that we're not speaking negatively about, the, uh, the, uh, about sins of homosexuality because the culture is really into that one, right, these days and all this other kind of stuff. Simply present Jesus as the answer to life's problems and him as the way to meet your needs to make your life the, your best life now. Now, if you just follow those short steps, that will allow you to attract false disciples. You'd be well on your way to, to uh, gathering together a bunch of shallow, biblically illiterate, quote-unquote, seeker-friendly people, quote-unquote, church people, who are nothing more than false followers. Nothing more than false followers of Christ who will eventually fall away from Jesus. You asked me the question, I knew you were going to ask me the question, why in the world would you ever want to follow that kind of model and intentionally attract false converts or false believers? The answer is, I have no idea why you'd want to do that. But sadly, that is the exact course that many people model in this country who like to call themselves churches. I'm much happier when they don't um, have church on their banner outside and they just have some innocuous name like the gathering that's good that's better than church because that ain't a church true followers of christ they recognize god for who he is they recognize christ as god's son and true followers of christ love him they bow before him they worship him with tongue and deed they follow him no matter what they love his teaching. They love his word, even when it's hard, because the word has set them free. It's the word of God through the person of Jesus Christ, God's word that has set them free. False followers of Christ will follow for a time, then they will reject him because they're driven away from Christ because of the truth, because again of his words. Now that brings us there to verse 22. Right, verse 22, the disciples have gone. Jesus has sent his disciples, the 12, to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee during the night. The, sea, the uh, scene shifts back to the east side of the lake, verse 22, the next day. The next day after the day that Jesus had, perfect, had fed the 5,000 or the 20, 25,000 people, the multitudes right, stood on the other side. The next day, the multitudes uh, stood on the uh, other side of the sea. Now, these people, the multitude spent the crowd, they spent the night there, right? Morning comes, they're looking for Jesus. They are hoping for another free meal, right? They're hoping that he provides for them breakfast. The multitude saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away. So again, the crowd knew that the disciples had not gotten the boat, or they, they knew that the disciples had gotten the boat, but that Jesus had not, right? They knew that Jesus hadn't gone with him. And perhaps, again, that's why they stayed there on the side of the shore, right? They're hoping that Jesus is going to provide them breakfast in the morning. He's just provided them uh, dinner in the evening. Now, I think what you have to understand in the day, the context of the day here, nobody's got uh, um, refrigerators, right? There's no supermarkets. So every day literally is a battle for food. Every day literally is just a struggle to get your next meal because someone's got to go find it, somebody's got to prepare it. There aren't any fast food places. 
So life is consumed in this day with the, with the struggle just to get your next meal. So morning comes, but he's not there. So if Jesus isn't there, guess what? It's not looking good for an immediate breakfast. And, and it's somewhat of a mystery to them that Jesus is not there because they don't know what's happened to him. They know that he did not leave with his disciples when they went across the lake. Again, they don't know what really happened, right? There's no eyewitnesses of the multitude of him walking on water. Verse 23, and verse 23 really is somewhat of a parenthetical statement. It says, There came other small boats from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So many small boats from Tiberias, which is an important city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, have come to the place where the miracle occurred. We're not told in the text why they came. Perhaps news has gotten around uh, the lake by morning, across the lake, if you want, of this miraculous event. Maybe people are coming to investigate the situation. Maybe people have come to pick up their friends and their loved ones, and someone has suggested that maybe these are, in essence, water taxis, if we will, uh, seeking to cash in on the large number of people who need transportation uh, across rather than walking around the lake. So Jesus is not there, so they go try to find him, verse 24. When the multitude saw Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, Capernaum is a logical place to go look for him because that's his uh, adopted hometown, as it says in Matthew 4 and 13. Now, this is a huge undertaking, right, for people to go seek him. Uh, the crowd was massive to begin with in uh, the, the night when their bellies were full. They want to make him king, so the crowd is, is uh, following him. It's growing inside. More boats are coming. More people are coming. They're going to follow him, but they're following him for the wrong reason. They're not interested in worshiping him. They're not interested in obeying him. They're not interested in his words. They're not interested in the truth. Right? They had been the witnesses and the beneficiaries of his miraculous power, his kindness. I mean, all day before he fed them in the evening, all day long he healed their sick. He provided them supernatural food in the evening. In the morning he healed their sick. They all had benefited from his supernatural power. But again, instead of worshiping him as the 12 disciples did, the crowd wants more from him. We want more. We have no other interest, right, except we want more. We want you to serve our needs. So now the crowd knows that Jesus is not there, so they're going to go seek him. And again, the crowd is growing inside, in size, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now implied in the question really is, how did you get here? And he doesn't answer them. He could have said, well... You're not going to believe this, but I walked on the water last night across in the middle of the raging sea, and I found the boys in the middle of the lake, and I rescued them. That's really what happened, but he doesn't say that. And he doesn't even answer the question. He ignores their question. It's irrelevant. It's a superficial question. But what he does is he addresses their heart. He addresses their sinful motives. The crowd is seeking him, that's true, but the crowd is seeking him wrongly. They're looking for someone who will provide for them material comfort, not eternal life. They wanted a king. They wanted a political messiah who would bring peace and prosperity. They're not interested in him as the bread of life, whom they could know personally, through whom only men can be reconciled to God and have their sin forgiven. Verse 26. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, or amen, amen, or verily, verily, uh, I'm going to tell you a solemn truth. Anytime Jesus uses that kind of phraseology, he, he's uh, um, introducing an important truth that he wants his hearers to pay careful attention to. So again, instead of answering the question, he rebukes them. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but you ate of the loaves and were filled. Right? Again, it's a very insightful, piercing statement because Christ knows all men's hearts. I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the supernatural. Right? You had your bellies full. That's what you're here for. You want breakfast. And amazingly, the crowd completely misses the significance of the miracle that they had just witnessed that Christ had performed. The the miracle of Christ multiplying the loaves and the fishes should have turned uh, their attention to Christ as the Messiah. Because again, who instantaneously creates massive amounts of food ongoing till everybody has what they want, till their bellies are full, and there's 12 baskets left over? Nobody but God come in the flesh can do that. They were eyewitnesses to the miraculous signs Jesus performed. Again, not just the feeding, but the, the healing of their sick all day long. But they, they, they failed to grasp the spiritual implication of what they saw. Now, unbelievably, Mark tells us that after the feeding of the crowd, even the twelve missed it. Mark 6.52 says they had not gained any insight from the incident of the lows, but their heart was hardened. So even the twelve themselves failed to comprehend fully that this is God incarnate in their very presence until he walks to them on the water out in the middle of the raging sea. That's when they say, Matthew 14, 33, truly you are God's son. Matthew records another situation, another time when the Lord calmed the storm on that same lake. The men asked the question, Matthew 8, 27, when he comes that, what kind of man is this? And the Lord calls them men of little faith, right? Men of little faith. We just don't get it. We are frail humanity. Unless God in his kindness opens our heart to see the truth. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Right? That's exactly what the false, the peddlers of the false prosperity gospel push today. Jesus is here to make you healthy and wealthy. Jesus is here to fulfill all of your earthly desires, all your wants, all your needs. Right? The, the crowd who are amassed at the side of the uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, they would have been members of the, in good standing, they would have been members of the first prosperity gospel church. Right? They want what Jesus has. Again, it's the same idea that the uh, uh, false prosperity gospels, uh, gospelers of our day or the social gospelers of the early 1900s push. That Jesus wants to take care of all your needs. Jesus wants to feed you. Jesus wants to fulfill your desires. Jesus is here to meet your personal, personal felt needs, provide you personal f- uh, fulfillment. And again, that false, sadly popular heresy uh, of the so-called prosperity gospelers uh, has been around for a long time. It's still around in our day. False teachers promote a damnable teaching that Christ is only there to meet your physical needs, to fulfill all your material desires. He's kind of like a, a genie in the bottle, and you've got a problem, you rub him up, and he comes up to you on demand. And all of these people uh, who teach this kind of nonsense prey on, on people's greed, right? This kind of uh, prosperity gospel uh, stuff uh, is rampant throughout the world, especially poorer countries where they really have a difficult time of making it, but as well as the United States where most of us are pretty well off. They deceive people to think that their real needs are the physical, the material possession. Here's omniscient God standing in their presence, 
who has created food for them abundantly. He knows what's best for them. He talks about spiritual life, and they say, we're not interested. You don't know my needs. It's a pretty audacious stand for fallen man to take in the presence of God. Who are you to tell me? Who are you to be God over my life? Verse 27, Jesus says, do not work for the food which perishes. Right? He's not saying be lazy, don't work, quit your job, take a vow of poverty. He's not saying that. He says, look, the Bible commands us to work hard, to provide adequately for our families. He tells the crowd, look, do not work for food which perishes. He says, look, you're pursuing the wrong thing. Anything temporal, anything superficial, physical, earthly, don't make that a priority in your life. Don't spend all your time, your money, your energy for those things in time that have passed away. Again, Jesus in kindness, tremendous kindness, is trying to redirect their focus. And he's rebuking them for their materialism. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. Now, what is this food which endures to eternal life? Again, Jesus already told them. It was him. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Who comes, he who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. So again, the question is, where's the focus of your life? What's important to you? What are you working for? Not only the people on the side of the, of the lake here, but in the room. What are you working for? What's important to you? Remember what Jesus said in Mark 8, 36. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Luke twelve fifteen. And following, Jesus tells a story of a parable of a man who wanted to build bigger and bigger barns to store his wealth, but that night he died. The man had all the world's good, amassed a tremendous amount of material blessings, but he died poor in God because he didn't take care of his soul. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Now, what does that mean? To work for, or to labor for that which is free. What does it mean to work or to labor for that food which endures to eternal life? J.C. Ryle sums it up very well. He says, how are we to labor? He says there's but one answer. But one answer. We must labor in the use of all appointed means. We must read our Bibles like men digging for hidden treasure. We must wrestle earnestly in prayer like men contending with a deadly enemy for life. We must take our whole heart to the house of God and worship here like those who listen to the reading of a benefactor's will. We must fight daily against sin and the world and the devil like those who fight for liberty, and we must conquer or be slaves. These are the ways that we work if we would find Christ and be found in him. This is laboring. This is the secret of getting about your souls or taking concern for your soul. That's a tremendous statement, right? By how we should all evaluate our own lives in the light of the, the truth, right? How do we arrange our lives to make sure in the business of life we're not taken out, taken out by the physical daily issues of life and we're not giving full attention to our souls how do we make sure that we're working if you will for the food that endures for eternal life how do we make sure that we're giving our life in total to christ do not do the work or do not work for food which perishes but food which endures to eternal life which the son of man shall give you again 
What is the food that the Son of Man wants to give? Verse 51, remember, I am the living bread. Came down out of heaven. If anyone eats the bread, he shall live forever. This bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Christ, again, is offering to the entire world eternal life. It's found only in a proper understanding of who he is. It's found only in him. It's only found in understanding why he's come. It's only found by repentance, confession of sin, belief upon Christ, again, as mankind's only hope. Don't work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Then he adds, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. What does that mean, that the Father has, uh, God himself has set his seal? It just simply means that God has authenticated Jesus Christ and does authenticate Jesus Christ over and over again as the real deal. That one person whom all men need. You might remember in the day of Pentecost, uh, Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 22, Peter stands up. And he preaches, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. God has authenticated Christ, his son. God has set his seal upon him. He has verified, (coughs) excuse me, the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the bread of life. He is the only one who provides eternal life. And God has empowered him in time to perform signs and wonders and miracles to attest to the reality of his deity. Jesus says, look, guys, to the crowd, you're you're ignoring the signs. You're ignoring the obvious. You're missing the point. Signs always point to a reality beyond themselves, right? It sounds like donut sign, Don Bill's Donuts down here, you don't care about the sign, I guarantee you. You want what the sign points to. Signs point to the reality. The signs that Jesus did point to the reality of who he is. The reality of who's standing in their presence. And Jesus says, guys, you're ignoring the sign. You're concerned so much with your belly, you're missing the truth that's right in front of you. You're missing the reality of the person who's standing in your presence. Your want, your belly's filled, you're missing the fact that God is in your very presence. Stop Working, Stop spending all of your time and effort on the physical, on those things that are perishing. Right? Work for the food. Pursue the food of eternal life, and it's found only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants to give it to you freely. Now, you can always draw a crowd of false followers, false disciples. When you've got some kind of supernatural, spectacular display, you always attract a crowd when you've got food, free food. People are fascinated by the supernatural. They're fascinated by the free. You can always draw a crowd when you tell people that Jesus is here to meet their felt needs. You can draw a crowd when people are focused on the physical and not the spiritual. You start getting into the spiritual realm, and people start getting upset with you. Or upset with me, because I'm the guy who always takes us to the spiritual realm. Right? They don't like the words. When Jesus comes, or his followers, his disciples come, and they... The true disciples, they make harsh demands upon people. When the word makes harsh demands upon people, the demands for repentance, demands for righteousness, holiness, for counting the cost to follow Christ, to pick up your cross, die daily in your pursuit of him, to actually make him who he is, the Lord of your life, preeminent in all areas. When you start making those kinds of demands upon people, start immediately see, you start to immediately see a separation between the false and the true. The superficial, the fake, the false followers, again, they only think from an earthly perspective, a physical perspective. Because they have no real desire for Christ. They have no real desire for worship. 
And when Christ does not fulfill their personal needs, desires, and wants, when his words become too difficult, when the gospel is proclaimed, the false followers of Christ will fall away. They will fall away. Verse 28. They said, therefore, to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? What shall we do? Again, the crowd doesn't get it. They're filtering Jesus' words through their own warped thinking. Because their religious system taught that they needed to do something. Some kind of work to earn spiritual life. What work should we do? And again, you see that thinking uh, throughout the New Testament. The rich young ruler asked Christ, Matthew 19, verse 16, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtural, uh, obtain eternal life? Or when the lawyer stands up in Luke 10, 25, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a common error in the Jewish religious system, believing that they could do something to, eternal, to earn eternal life, but it is a common error in all false religious systems, even in our day. The unifying factor, I don't care what the religious system is, the unifying factor of all the world's religions, all the false systems of religion in the world, is men are all working for their righteousness. They're all trying to earn right standing before God by what they do. When the Bible says very clearly, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. You're not working your way into heaven. It doesn't matter what you do. Because salvation is a free gift. It's a free gift of God. All who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Salvation never comes to any man by human effort. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. It's free. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now again, salvation is not by human work, it's not by human effort. Titus 3 Verse 4, And the kindness of our God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us not on the basis of deeds by which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing, regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation is a free gift. How much do you pay for a free gift? It's not a difficult question. You can think about it for a few minutes if you want. But free means, in the Greek, do you know what free means, Right? Come, buy and eat without money, without cost. Come. It's the free gift. Salvation is a gift of God's kindness, not works. The only quote-unquote work, if you want to put it in that category, that is acceptable is to believe. Believe upon him whom God has sent. Again, that is a grace. A belief is grace, right? Again, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the person of Jesus Christ alone. And again, the only food that endures for eternal life is the person of Jesus Christ himself, right? The only thing that's really worth pursuing in this life is the person of Christ. He's the bread of life. Come to the waters. Come to the, come to the table. And Jesus is offering himself to the listeners, to the crowd, to the multitudes. Jesus is offering himself to everybody in this room. Jesus is offering himself to the world today. But the sad truth, ultimately, most of the people in the world are not interested. Some people are intrigued by his power. Some people are captivated by his miraculous word, word or work. They're, they're happy to have their bellies filled. But when he makes demands upon them, and he wouldn't give to them what they thought they needed when their superficial expectations went unmet, 
when he demanded that they would follow him and follow him exclusively for eternal life, they rejected him. They wouldn't follow him. They turned away from him, demonstrating again the fact they're not genuine followers, not genuine disciples, not genuine believers of Christ in him at the first place. Because the true follower of Christ understands who he is, and the true follower of Christ worships the Lord Jesus Christ. The true follower of Christ loves him, worships him, adores him, will follow him no matter what. The true follower of Christ obeys him because he understands that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Jesus said to the 12, verse 67, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 